and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am here today with Aaron Marsh. You may know Aaron from playing in the band Copeland, but he's also produced, among their records, uh, Anne Berlin, Amorosa, Lydia, and This Wildlife. And what a treat this was, because I'm a huge Copeland fan, and he was so smart and so knowledgeable. I learned a ton from this. I learned a ton about some of my favorite records. And he also just knows a ton about recording and creativity and making great songs. I think we had an awesome, awesome conversation. So... I'm really psyched on this one. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did having it. Check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's the chain you're using to record your voice today? Using uh, U87 through uh, 1073, keeping it classic. That is keeping it classic. Very, very <laughs> well done. So tell me about your background in music. Uh, let's see. I started when I was real little, started playing piano. Uh, my mom was a single parent church worker, so she would put me in put me in like a Sunday school room and the piano kind of became my babysitter, so to speak. So I started just tinkering, no lessons, just... Uh, just kind of learning to play melodies by ear and learning to write a little bit and ended up becoming pretty comfortable on piano. And then through school days, went to performing arts high school, playing wind instruments, primarily trombone. I kind of dabbled in lots of brass instruments and studied music theory there and got pretty incredible, like well-rounded kind of music history education and, and you know, performance on trombone, a lot of theory came out of that, got braces my senior year of high school and got really discouraged playing playing the horn. So I kind of set it aside and started focusing on piano and guitar. I mean, I had dabbled in drums and bass, you know, previous to that. And really anything I could get my hand on, I would try to pick up. It kind of started to become more confident as a singer as I started doing bands and stuff in high school and after high school. And eventually, the Copeland band started to do pretty well and started touring full time and did that for 10 years. After 10 years, we kind of called it quits and I settled down in my hometown, Lakeland, Florida. It's like right in, right in between Tampa and Orlando in Florida. Built a studio. It's really the first professional recording facility that Lakeland has had. I just started working on records and I'd really never, never stopped doing music. I mean, I don't think I took any time at all off. I was already kind of producing 
as the band was going. So I just kind of let that kind of take off. Yeah. Now here I am. Nice. So Copeland obviously had always a pretty experimental production aesthetic. Where did that start to come in for you in your life and along that run? I think it always interested me in, I mean, in high school, I would record, I had, you know, four track and a reel to reel eight track and that kind of thing and would record the high school bands. So I think I already kind of had the, kind of had the bug for, you know, getting interesting sounds and, you know, I think I realized that there was, you know, kind of more than one way to record a song and lots of different, lots of different trails you could take, you know, as you're making decisions during the recording. And then, you know, I have to, and I have to give a lot of credit to Matt Goldman, the producer on the first three Copeland records, and I just learned an insane amount from him. He's, he's a ridiculous drum engineer and just taught me a whole, a whole heck of a lot about, about music in general. Yeah, that's probably my biggest, my biggest influence as far as a as far as a producer is concerned nice so you have your own studio can you tell me a little bit about the studio yeah the studio is called the vanguard room been called the vanguard room since 98 or something when i was still in still in high school so i've stuck with my name so we built this facility about six years ago and it's about two thousand square feet two producers working here um my partner matt wilbur also is really really great producer so he has a room up front and I have a room in the back and his uncle, this is convenient, his uncle is an acoustic engineer, uh, which is really handy. So he kind of helped us kind of get the room sounding good, particularly the control rooms to get them to where they were accurate so we could kind of kind of trust our mixes a little more. So it's real helpful. What is one of the things that you think makes the studio somewhat unique? Well, Matt and I have been working together since high school. We were, you know, we were uh, high school friends and I think the two of us have just kind of kind of taught each other a lot and and in a lot of ways we've just kind of progressed to kind of have our we we work really similarly we're a lot alike and we we kind of have a similar we both definitely like have a particular sound maybe you know there's those pr- producers that you hear and you go oh i bet you know i bet that guy worked on that record and you know sure enough you can tell the just the sonic fingerprint so i think he and i have kind of both come up with that you know, that, that mindset that, you know, a producer can, can be heavy handed and really impart a really, a really cool sonic fingerprint, or, you know, there's time to get out of the way and, and be invisible too. So, but I think for the most part, he and I both more often than not, we're a little bit more on the heavy handed side as, as far as just like getting that, that sonic characteristic that is unique to us. So can you tell me some of the like premeditation, like what is your sonic character? Like, is there certain things that you prefer and you feel like you bring to that, that you're like, okay, well, I think this sounds this way, even though a lot of people think this should sound this way. Is there any example of that? I have a, I have a strange relationship with reverb. At times I love it. And at times I absolutely want all of it out of my recordings and, you know, you know, finally finding ways to, ways to use it for what it is and not use it as a, as a crutch to hide bad performances or to hide bad tones. Or I always say that reverb is kind of like the audio equivalent of ranch dressing is like kind of makes everything just taste like ranch. It's good. It's good. It's easy to, easy to like, but 
you know, there there may be a more interesting flavor in the world. And, and also is eventually going to make uh, take up more space, just like your stomach, if you keep eating it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of parallels between Reverb and Ranch. <laughs> that, that, that is I, very good. I, I like that. I want to I want a Reverb plugin called Hidden Valley. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm 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 with it. And then like if you like if you try to get classy with it, you could turn it to blue cheese. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bolder, a nice. little bolder flavor for you. So, so, so staying with the that thing. Oh, the, go, go ahead. The sonic characteristics. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Uh, really deliberate uses of reverb. There's certain instruments that I gravitate towards. Uh, people associate the Mellotron with me a lot. Um, yes. I use that instrument a lot. I, th- I think. I think. I think we could say um, Copeland brought Mellotron to emo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, we could say that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to, you didn't sound, you didn't sound too thrilled about oh, yeah. that, but I you know, the- I, I but, but like I you know I was somebody who was you know I listened to a lot of Elephant Six stuff in the '90s and like they'd be using it heavily and then like when I heard you guys do, it, I'm like, oh, this works and this is yeah, great. Yeah, um, I think I first I think I first heard it on Counting Crows recovering the satellites record. That record starts out with that that Mellotron sound and it's just like it's kind of been. It's felt like kind of a home, homey kind of sound for me ever since then. So yeah, that um, I I love dry drum sounds, dry dead drum sounds, rags on the drums, whatever you know. Of course, I I, I like to open them up too. I learned to, to record drums from Matt Goldman, so he gets those big wide open sounds. But I think I get the most pleasure out of you know really muted dark drum sounds, and so. You know, kind of people associate that with uh, with my sound sometimes. Yeah, and I I think I sh- and I th- the string arrangements. Uh, I went to school for it with with the performing arts school, so I still am in touch with lots of of my string playing friends and and wind players and stuff. So I have them in the studio a lot and try to incorporate those sounds. Nice. So. We've been saying in this podcast, there's kind of this scale of like, you know, you have a Steve Albini who doesn't really talk about your songwriting, will just mic you up and capture your sound. And then you have a John Feldman who kind of like rewrites your whole song for you. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum? It's real, it's real hard for me to just record and not, and not contribute musically. I'm definitely pretty far from Steve Albini. As far as rewriting songs, I think... Maybe one of my favorite things to do is like take the song someone's written and kind of reframe it almost. I don't work on the top line as much as I work on what's around it. And cuz I feel like what most of the time what people bring to me the vo- in the vocal is usually like the heart of the song unless it was written by a guitar player and they just have this slam and riff that they based a the whole song around. I feel like the heart of the song is in that is in that top line. If I'm going to be true to the song, and true to the artist and still do what I do best. I feel like I'm working on the chord progression, I'm working on the bass line, I'm working on the sonic qualities of the drums. I'm working on the you know, we might switch around switch around parts. Let's, you know, let's make the let's make the pre-chorus into the bridge or let's do, you know, like some you know, like minor like arrangement changes, but I feel like most of what I do is is in the instrumentation and and trying to reframe that song in a way that you know like really brings the emotion across. Um, I can't really remember a time that I've like in in recent history. I don't think I've really changed anyone's top line too much. 
Um, unless unless it's just a bad a bad lyric or something, I might suggest a rewrite of a lyric. But but yeah, I, I usually leave the top line intact. I think. Nice. I, I think that that's an interesting thing because um, I'm gonna have to work this in because like I think there is a place that a lot of us who like you know get in and tinker with arrangements like i'm almost more reluctant to mess with the guitar accompaniment part like the rhythm guitar part and mess more with the vocal line i think that's an interesting perspective of where you base the strengths from thanks yeah i'm sure you know this like a lot of being a producer is kind of playing psychologist and and trying to trying to like kind of assess the band dynamic and figure out who is the innovator in this song like who wrote the very first piece of this song and who cares about this thing the most and who knows what it's supposed to be trying to serve their vision and get getting the rest of the band to kind of to kind of coalesce around their vision i think that's important because it's yeah. when you get too many egos and too many people trying to make it into what they want it to be i, th- I feel like it can it can kind of lose sight of of like of the original heart of the song yeah I like you using the the innovator. I think that that's a, a very good way of putting it because it's not always the songwriter; it's the person who's pushing it forward in the band exactly. that you kind of want to follow. Yeah, that's a, re- a really great point. So related, what do you think you bring to records most often? Probably that arrangement sensibility. I really like working from, you know, I, I work from the vocal, but I also work from the bottom, and I, I I feel like a lot of the the emotion of the song is in the bass. I mean, nothing grinds me worse than when the band has like their worst guitar player as their bass player because it makes it real hard to make the song like feel something when you got have a guy who is just struggling to to stay on beat and get the root the root note Uh, you really need someone who knows how to push through the transitions who needs to like knows how to elevate the chorus who knows how to pull the band back i feel like the bass player can drive this thing more than anybody else they can you know, the bass player can make the drummer tighten up. The bass player can reframe the melody by what note he's choosing to play on the bottom end of the chord progression. So I, I think I, I probably spend more time on bass than drums on most on most stuff. I, I feel like a lot of the emotion is in the bass. I think you're 100% right. And, you know, sadly, there is too many bands where it's just the, the bassist. It means it's the person who never practices except at band practice. Exactly. What's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? I know most people say demoitis or not having a having an open mind, but for me, indecisiveness is an album killer. It's a song killer. If you can't if you can't decide on a direction, if you can't decide on a tone, decide on a part, decide on a hook, decide on a you know a, a drum fill, it makes every single decision after it even harder. So like this, the way, you know, the way we have so much flexibility with computer recording now, you can like set a tone and then you can change it later with click, uh, with a click, you know, or like, you know, program your drums and, and change the fills later. I think the, the one thing that just grinds my gears is, oh, well, let's just keep both and decide later. Like that phrase, it's like, oh, I can't decide on the Vox or the Marshall. So can we just record both and decide later? Well, no, we we have another decision to make after this and another decision and a hundred more decisions before this song is done. And we we need to know what the guitar is going to sound like to to make any of those decisions. If someone's going to make a demo of a song and and fall in love with their demo, at least they've like decided on what they want the song to sound like. And and I'd actually rather deal with demoitis than 
than like kind of indecisive waffling and uh and not picking a direction and it's yeah it's really hard for me to work on a song if i don't know what direction we're going in so so the funny thing is i started reading a book literally uh two days ago called uh, the paradox of choice and it literally even talks about that if you're amounting choices and then you're leaving things open that that actually makes creativity break down over and over. And it's also what leads to people giving up on things faster is that there's just a certain amount of ego depletion that you can take and you need to commit to things as you go or else you just get depleted and your energy for, towards the project leaves. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, if you think about all the independent bands out there who would love to be making music for a living and you know, living their dream and think about probably how many garage band demos they have on their laptop that are, that are unfinished. It's just like they, and those, those demos are unfinished because they didn't decide on something or they didn't decide on 40 things while ma- while making that demo. So it's just, it's just there and it's, it's crippling. So yeah, that's my that's that's my big one. Nice. That's really good. What's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? So I work with a lot of I work with a lot of younger bands and have worked with, you know, some more experienced bands and I think one thing that's interesting about the more experienced bands is they they know how to kind of well, I was kind of saying this a minute ago, they kind of know how to coalesce behind a leader. I remember in the early days of making my records when I wasn't really proven as, or maybe, and I wasn't even confident as a leader, you know, in the band, we hadn't really done anything substantial yet. You know, the dynamic of that versus, you know, making our fifth album when my band, every, everyone knows their role and has figured out a way to support me in getting my vision across. And they're just offering ideas with no, no ego <laughs> and, uh, and, and trying to, trying to help me help me get to that spot. So I'm the leader in the band and my band is in a non-competitive, non-egotistical way offering support and and contributing in a way that if I say no to an idea, there's no hard feeling. They probably have three other ideas to to you know to back that up. With Anne Berlin it was awesome. I worked on their last record, the Lowborn record. And it was it was just awesome to see because there were th- three guys writing songs for that record and when you know, when we were working on one of Joey's songs, everyone was supporting Joey's vision. When we were working on one of Nate's songs, everyone was looking to him for leadership. Christian songs, we were, you know, everyone like looked. So that kind of taught me a lot because, you know, it was it was just very clear that there was no ego. Every, you know, there was there was kind of a leader on different songs, and and everyone was just trying trying to like pull their vision together and. uh it was really cool, really relaxed, and uh, yeah, is is a great is a great way to work. Same thing with Lydia. I mean, Layton Layton is the is the innovator in the band, and the other guys in the band they are just looking, you know, they're kind of, you know just looking to support him in that. Whereas if you get newer bands in, they haven't like really sussed out that leadership, that you know that any any kind of hierarchy or any kind of like role you know, like role assignment for them to each, everyone's good at this one thing. So, you know, they haven't kind of like kind of congealed in that way to where they're like really like working efficiently. Yeah. There's like a a really good thing about like that 
you know, like marriage counseling, they talk about that. The only way you have a successful relationship is when you get past the power struggle and where you're going to be in that power hierarchy has fallen into place. And I think you're making a fucking fantastic point of that. Like the people who are going to be supporting that main person have to just do it with that, knowing that that person's probably going to have some veto power and yeah. just, you're just trying to help get them into a better place. Yeah. And it just, stuff always just comes out better when it's like that. You know, if there's a way you can check your ego, let the innovator innovate, it just turns out better. The times when two leaders really successfully make some make some great thing is probably just so few and far between, you know, com- compared to like when one guy leads, one girl leads and like executes a vision and everyone supports them. So tell me about one of the biggest mistakes or a smart thing bands can do to with uh, vocals in the studio. Write lyrics. Uh, um, yeah, uh, I'm, and I'm guilty of going into the studio with half finished songs. It's crucial. It's, it just puts such a weight when, when it's vocal time and somebody doesn't have their lyrics finished. It's just like, what, you know, what, (laughs) what can we do as far as like recording vocals? It really helps if you know harmony well, if you know, I mean, sing harmonies with, when, when you're listening to music, sing the harmony, you know, or try to come up with new harmonies for songs that exist. You know, when someone like really sings harmonies well, stuff just goes so so much faster. Because I can't tell you how many like great singers I've had in the studio that as soon as they're off the melody, they fall apart. It's like a yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. They, they uh, try to sing a different note and just lose all their confidence. So I I think singing harmonies is is like an important part of of becoming a good recording artist. Nice. So you talked about how you know a lot, you were trained very th- uh, much in theory. And when I listen to Copeland records though, like one of the biggest things, like obviously with people with theory is like, you can hear that Copeland records are highly compositional, but they still have so much heart and emotion. Is there any lesson that you could impart on how you still keep a really good emotional content and not let the theory get in the way like a lot of other people do? I think I just have to think about theory as a tool. It's just like a, it's like a language that I speak that helps me, you know, helps me come up with chord progressions more quickly, you know, gives me ideas on directions to go. But, you know, the songs still, they still have to come from, they still have to come from, I don't, I don't, I'm not thinking about the progression when I'm, when I have a idea for like a hook or, you know, honestly, sometimes it takes me a while to figure out you know, to figure out the progression, if I if I have like an idea for a hook, because I just I, you do have to kind of put it out of your head, and put the put the theory and it, it definitely helps to understand understand why certain notes sound well, or sound nice together. But to write a song that's going to connect with someone, it just has to be a lot more than that. And got to like kind of know when to when to break the rules too. Whoever invented playing power chords, obviously hadn't taken any theory you know because it's like it's 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 i mean it's contrary to theory i mean but it works for rock music for rock music excuse me so yeah you it's it helps to know it and it and it makes things fun and makes things like you know interesting to write and opens up a lot of doors but yeah i think a song still kind of comes from from the heart and a lot of times just needs it needs to be simple harmonically Nice. So tell me about what happens when you and a band disagree about something. So, yeah, I mean, if it's a matter of taste, 
if it's just an issue of taste, there's really never going to be an argument. I mean, I'll express my, I'll express my taste. Like, um, this wildlife just finished a record, and they love Taylor guitars, and I love and I love Gibson guitars. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm on Team Aaron on this one. Okay, yeah. Well, I was just they. Were, I was never going to come around to Taylors, and they were never going to come around to using a J45. So, uh, so we. I was like, all right, well, we'll just we'll rock with the Taylors, and I'll just you know I'll do what I do, and if you like that sound, you like that sound. There's nothing. There's not really an argument to have over taste. I think where the where the arguments come in more often for me, maybe someone's doing something that is contrary to the vision of the song or for the vision of the record, maybe doesn't know how that is coming across. They're just doing what they always do. Uh, it seems like it's always like a drummer wants their drums to sound like Beck C change, but they wanna but they wanna like blast on their ride cymbal on the chorus. It's like, well, we're not gonna be able to get your drums to sound like sound like uh you know sea change with you playing like that you know let's let's tip this ride cymbal up a little bit and and not like <laughs> let's tip it towards you and so you can hit the top of the cymbal and not not just like hitting the side of the cymbal with the shaft of the stick cuz it's you're not getting us there so yeah if it's if it's you know kind of like contrary to the vision you know a lot of times I'll stand my ground if the drummer blasts on the cymbal and we play it back and he likes it better than my suggestion, then I guess we'll roll with it. But I mean, I'm not going to walk out on a, on a session on a session over a over a ride symbol. But um, I want I want to stick to the, I want to stick to the vision. I want to I want to make sure that we all kind of stay stay focused on on what we talked about making initially. But yeah, but issues of taste. No, there's never going to be a there's never going to be an issue with that. It's just taste. You like this, I like that. We'll just do your way. It's fine. Nice. I like that. So now we're going to do the part where we talk about how you feel about some modern production stuff. Um, how do you feel about amp simulators in your productions? A lot of times they're really helpful if I need to get like, if someone's playing like a finger-picked electric guitar and it has to be just so soft and dead silent uh, and any amp is going to give me more hum than I, than I want. Uh, and the amp simulator is a great way around that problem. Oh, that's right. That's a good tip. But for the most part, I like, I like micing up amps. Um, I, I think there's, there's maybe been a, a few records where we had just a big wall of guitars and maybe, you know, used to use the amps. You know, I might, I might've used the scratch, you know, the scratch guitar as, as like one of the layers. So, so yeah, I, th- I think they're helpful, but but I still, I still like, I like amps. I have this magnetone amp that is oh, just wow. yeah, those are... so ripping. It's, it's tough to not use it on every single song. Damn, man. Yeah. The, the, I think I've heard those twice and, and both times I was blown away. Yeah. They're great. And they, you can get them real cheap. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you look around, they, they were real common, like back in the day in the fifties or something. Nice. How about sample drums? I don't, I don't really use sample drums that much. I, you know, again, as a as a student of Matt Goldman, uh, I learned how to mic up a kit and just like fell. I f- honestly, I fell in love. I think just watching him work kind of made me fall in love with getting drum tones. So honestly, the getting drum sounds is like my favorite part of the record. And usually, I'm so 
excited about the sounds we got that I don't even, it doesn't even cross my mind to use a sample. I know, I know lots of people use them with lots of success and maybe I should be, maybe I could do even crazier, uh, more awesome stuff with them. Um, but I just don't use them that often. It's not, not, not never. I'm, I'm sure I've, I'm sure I've used them some, but, um, especially like back in the day when, if I would have a problem with something that I recorded, if it, you know, you know, some, a, a mic wasn't, you know, got moved or if it was cl- clipped or the mic was broken or something, you know, and I didn't catch it. Yeah. I, I think there's a thing when you get control over drum sounds, you know, uh, it's, it's that thing of like, it's, it's very easy to not have to use a sample if you know how to control the drum tone. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm sure Goldman even uses drum samples from, from time to time. I know uh, we mixed the, we mixed the last two Copeland records with Michael Brower. Oh, wow. And, and, uh, I was, I was trying to like peek around to see if he was using, you know, sinking some samples into my, <laughs> into my drum tones that I got. And yeah, he, he did, he did a little bit. He, he like fattened the kick up, but I think he left my snares pretty much intact, which was cool. But yeah, but even, I mean, I, I saw him scrolling through, through drum sounds when another producer was in. And so I know, I know he does it. So I know everybody does it, I'm sure. So, uh, how about pitch correction? Yeah. I've worked with an awful lot of great singers. I honestly, I, I feel like I, something about the records that I make just attracts great, great singers for some, some reason, which is really nice. Um, I think it's also like anybody who's ever listened to you are my sunshine and has heard your performance goes, okay, that guy knows what he can do. <laughs> well, well, thank you for that. Yeah. I've, I've recorded tons of great singers. And so fortunately, like I, I, I can usually comp something, you know, comp a few takes to sound pretty dang good, but, but yeah, I'm not opposed to hitting some words here and there, some phrases here and there, if, especially if it's going to save us, if it's going to rescue a really great performance that just has like a little pitch issue, you know, like maybe one per- performance had like great emotion. And a lot of times when you get really good emotion, the pitch suffers. So yeah, it's helpful for that. Uh, agreed. Um, do you master your own records? I don't, I, I've ne- not even, I've not even dabbled in mastering. Troy Glessner is in, is in Seattle. I've, I've worked with him on most stuff since, uh, like 2008 maybe. So yeah, he's, he's my go-to guy, but I know there's a lot of, a lot of good mastering engineers out there. Uh, and then, uh, the other, I was going to add this in when you did the drum question, sampled strings is, is a big one for me. Cause everyone comes to me for for you know that kind of symphonic sound and that's the that's the side of the coin that i don't i don't use any fake strings i do i do real strings and drums have gotten to the point where you know you can't you can't really tell a lot of times if if they're sampled drums unless you're an engineer and you know the samples you know it's like i i mix i mixed a record where a band threw in one song with sampled drums in the middle. I was like, oh, this is much better recorded. He really did good on this one. And I didn't, and then I hit solo on the rooms. I was like, oh shit. And it had me fooled for like 30 minutes when I was just rough mixing and not hitting solo. That's hilarious. It's funny when, cause I don't really own that many, that many like drum banks or like virtual drum things. It's always funny when I'm like in a store and over the, over the loudspeaker, I go, oh, there's that easy drummer. Like that, there's that '70s drum kit sample, that that deep snare. <laughs> it's like, it's like I know that sample. That's funny, uh, but yeah. Uh, but getting back to strings, yeah, that's the one thing that 
you know, like the the MIDI strings, I have a real hard time getting them to do what I want. So if there's no budget for strings, usually I try to find another way to get us there, either by, you know, you can do like Ebo guitar or guitar swells or a synth, you know, sometimes you can make synth strings sound really cool in a synthetic fake string way, but, you know, it's kind of cool. It's kind of a cool synth sound. But yeah, it's really tough for me to get string sound without getting real players in. And that that might be because I'm real, you know, real picky and I want to write parts that, that sound alive and sound like a real player. A lot of times I need a real player on it in order to get that. When you started answering this, I was like, oh, cool. Maybe he knows a good program because I've never been able to find one. And I think it's just that thing is there's still just not a substitute for that in the world. Yeah. It's it's too dynamic of an instrument. Mm. It's it's really and there's there's so much ha- there's so many overtones in a violin or a cello, you know, there's there's so much there. I don't know how they're ever going to how they're ever going to get there with the with the virtual strings. Well, well, if we can map the human mind, hopefully one day. <laughs> but uh <laughs> tell me uh how long do you usually take to work on a song? How long does it take to track? How long does it take to mix? It depends. It just depends. I mean, we did we did the Anne Berlin record in like two weeks, but then but then I'll have records that take you know that drag on for months. I don't even know. Where, I mean, a lot of people who come to me are like solo artists who you know don't have a band, and I'm playing all the instruments and writing all the parts, and that just takes time. It just you just you know it takes time to come up with stuff with you know that much stuff in a you know in a compressed amount of time just doesn't. It just doesn't happen. I only have so many ideas. So, uh, so yeah, a lot of times on records like that, you know, we could spend a week on a song, you know, or if, if the band comes in and it's like a, you know, it's the five-piece rock band or whatever, we could, you know, I'm sure we could get songs knocked out in, you know, a day and a half or two days tracking. But it tends to be that the kind of records that I do are these you know, kind of larger scale, we want strings, we want woodwinds, we want electronic elements, we want this, and that stuff just, it just takes a long time. It's just, I mean, every Copeland record tracking, and we were working full-time every day, every single Copeland record took eight weeks. So yeah, I'm just, I, I think I get in, to, I mean, to make these records that have a more like, you know, I, don't, I hate using the word experimental because, I mean, you know, yeah. Well, well thought out, I would say, is like one of the things I notice in sure. your records. Uh, yeah, like very deliberate, lots of different types of instrumentation, lots of different textures. It, yeah, they just take time. Yeah, I, I wish I had a had a system to knock I've, uh, all these all these guys that you're interviewing doing these like rock records saying, oh, yeah, we'll track a song in a day and I'll mix it in four hours. I'm like, oh, my God. I was like, my my life would be. I would have so much time if I if I if I could track a, a whole song in a day and mix it in four hours. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so it takes. Yeah. I I just do the kind of records that take a lot longer. I think. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think think that that effort sounds it comes through. So, and that that's what really matters. Really matters. How about uh, how long it usually takes you to mix though? Uh, I'll I'll spend a I'll spend a good day a song. A lot of times I'll jump between songs in a day. So you know it might spill over into the next day just to just to because i'll you know come back to it and get a fresh perspective the next day or take it in the car and listen to it and make some changes the next day but 
Yeah, usually a day to two days to like, you know, mix a song or two, I guess. Nice. What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? Learned so much from Goldman. I think there's there's one time we walked in into and and this is he won't even remember he won't even remember this story. But one time he, he we walked we walked in the studio. It was like the first day we were there to make one of the records, and he like he was putting away some mic, and I said and it had to be one of the first one of the first records. I was like, oh cool, is that a is that a new mic? I've never seen that one before. He's like, yeah, I just just got it. And I go, is it a I go, is it a vocal mic? And and he just he goes, well, they all kind of do the same thing. It's a mic. It records sound. <laughs> and just like, and he's real. He's kind of a sassy guy. But I think that was just like that's you know him just like kind of it was one of those like kind of get out of here, kid. You're bothering me kind of moments. But but uh, I, but it was like I'd never thought about mics in this way just like oh they're all just the same thing we use them as tools for different things but they're all they're all kind of the same thing i think that like kind of helped put like the fascination with gear into perspective it's just they're just tools you know they just they just do stuff and you know the the good tools are good because the same way a good screwdriver is good it's just reliable but i mean you can make stuff with bad but we can you can make something with a bad screwdriver. It's just harder, you know. And that little interaction, even though he didn't mean for it to be meaningful to me, like kind of put, kind of put a lot of like the the fascination and kind of obsession that you know, you know, guys like us, we love to like tinker with tools and we get, like to like learn about all the all the tools of the trade. But I mean, they're just tools, you know. Like, well, look, I mean, if you if you put Radiohead and Nigel Godrich in a room for six weeks with a bin full of recording equipment that they got from a yard sale, you know, and and then put, you know, I don't know, fucking train in like the nicest studio in the world with, you know, some producer who just makes slick stuff that's uninteresting. I would so much rather hear Radiohead making a record on a four track with a bunch of shitty mics and garbage electronics than, you know, uh, you know, kind of bad songs recorded really well, you know, yeah, nice gear is nice to have, but it doesn't really replace, doesn't really replace good songs and good ideas and good musicians and a good vibe. I think that's really well put. Tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio. Let's see when we were, we did this last Copeland record with Michael Brower and, um, Eddie, uh, we did it at electric lady studios in New York and, and uh, Eddie Kramer was there. He was like, I guess they're all the time finding like old tapes that Jimi Hendrix like played on. That I guess he was always there. And you know, if someone was recording, they'd be like, "Oh, just have Jimmy play on it." So, uh, so yeah, he was kind of, uh, had, you know, kind of re uh, rehabilitating, kind of restoring some some old Jimi Hendrix stuff, and let us listen to two of the songs in Electric Lady in like the room that it was recorded on, you know, uh, it's just like, what are we doing right now? It's just like Jim, Jimi Hendrix stuff that no one has ever heard. And, and, you know, we're in, we're in Electric Lady listening to this. It's just like with Eddie Kramer, this is like unbelievable. So yeah, that's, that's, that's gotta be the most memorable thing that's ever happened to me in a studio. It's crazy. That That is really, really awesome. 
What about one of the worst moments and what you learned from it? I had a a mishap while backing stuff up. Oh uh, wow! Copied copied the backup over uh, over top of the current instead of the other way around. I'll just put like, don't rush your producer. No matter how how stressed you are for time, don't rush because they are handling stuff. And and if the if, you know, producer like is is in constant mode of concentration all day, and if you put like the the burden of like rushing them, you know they can do really stupid stuff. So that actually had nothing. I mean, I wasn't rushed. I was just wasn't paying attention. I was, you know, frazzled. We were just about to take a break. And yeah, I was like, oh, well, while everyone's taking a break, let me, let me drag this session over to the backup drive. And I backed up the other way. So I dragged the old version over the new one and lost, you know, lost like a week of work. I I live in fear of this every day. Like I I, like just sit there. I'm like, am I doing that? Am I doing Uh, that? Yeah. There's nothing you could do because it's, if it overwrites it, it doesn't, yeah, there's no like, there's no recovering that. It's just, it's just gone. You just over, <laughs> overrode it. So yeah, I haven't done that since, thankfully. And yeah, I'm just like extra careful now when I back stuff up. Yeah, uh, one of the good tricks I learned uh, a while ago that I can't think of who showed me it now. I, I picture them showing it to me is that I have a spare drive that I literally just drag the day's work on each day and then erase the tenth day or whatever day when it gets full. I just erase the last day. Yeah. In between. So there's a daily backup and then there's the backup of their actual record that I do every couple days. That's a good idea. How do you how do you organize the day? Do you just know what song you worked on, so you drag that song over? I, I literally just put make a new folder and put the day on it. And so I see everything that I did that day. I just pull over when I'm leaving at night and that's what I do and leave the computer. I mean, you know, sacrifice for the electric bill. Um, But, you know, I pull that as I as I leave the uh, studio each night. Gotcha. It's good advice. Tell me, uh, I guess we're going to get into your music taste now. Uh, Three favorite producers. John Bryan's my number one. Uh, Nice. Yeah, I in this especially as like you know, as someone who loves like the orchestration side. So he did like Eternal Sunshine uh, soundtrack and Punch Trunk Love. He produced the Magnolia soundtrack. So he's just like, I mean, just like top notch arranger. Just one of the most brilliant musical minds of our time, and and he's one of those that you can tell. You know, you can tell if you're listening to a John Bryan produced song is just like it has that has that sound he also loves the mellotron too so we're kind of like i I feel like we're pretty we're we're like just exactly like he and i so (laughs) (laughs) i'll tell you you know years ago actually you know it was uh it was a record actually on militia group it was uh chase pagan we did his first record at cello and john bryan was working in the other room oh my god and he had so much gear around that was just so insane and he was so gracious with it like you know it was like literally like one of those things like you know we'd see somebody's like oh yeah if you want to use that just pull out another room and go do it and he was so cool and um but the funniest thing is he had a silver tone that strings had never been changed <laughs> he's like that's he's like that's the one thing don't even fucking look at it don't look at it <laughs> that's incredible so many uh that's awesome yeah. to hear because so many people make fun of me for not changing guitar strings and bass strings especially and I, I never i change bass strings as mm. infrequently as possible 
So interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, I, I use flat wounds to get that sound a lot of time. Yeah, there you go. That'll work. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I like that old uh, James Jamerson is like the Motown bass player. Mm. Yeah, he claimed that the the grit the grit in the little grooves was what gave him his soul. So. Oh, that's a great line. Yeah. I like that. Okay, who else we got? I kind of love love hip hop, um, like kind of mm. like like the more underground hip hop. So Mad Lib is um, just about about top notch these days for that. So I love Mad Lib. He's like his grooves are sick and just like I I can't I can't even wrap my head around the way he puts stuff together. I feel like I identify so much with hip hop producers because I feel like so often I'm playing all of the music on records and and then for just someone to sing over, you know, that that happens on a regular basis, like just recording singers and songwriters. Someone might just play acoustic guitar and sing and then I will, you know, kind of have the task of like finishing out the arrangement myself. So, um, so yeah, I feel like I really like identify with hip hop producers because they go, you know, it's so easy for them to have like their own like signature sound because like so much of it is just made by them you know it's just a you know different rapper over (laughs) over a beat you know salam raimi or uh mad lib or ski beats you know all these guys kanye they all have just like this you know they all have their sound you hear that track you're like oh yeah that's there's mad lib right there so so yeah uh mad lib and Mike Elizondo, I really like, and I love him because he's a bass player, and I feel like he, I, as I've grown into like, grown as a producer and realized just how much of the emotion is in the bass, I think that maybe is what keyed me into his records. But he also like he's produced so much like random stuff from like the Mastodon to Keith Urban, Twenty One Pilots, Ego Smith, Nelly Furtado, Fiona Apple. It's just like just like so across the board and um yeah he kept like just blowing my mind i'll be like oh this this record sounds crazy let me go go look up and see who did this and it was him and like i just started like really kind of following what he did and you know, watched his uh you know it's pensado's place yeah yeah it just seems like I, j- I just love his perspective and i love i love the producer being a bass player it's like a, such a cool um I don't know. It's just a cool thing I, I, for for how for how essential the bass feels to me now as a producer. It makes sense that I'm kind of drawn to his stuff. Uh, that does. So so the, the but the, now this brings up a very big existential question though. Which version of the Fiona Apple record do you like? Oh dang, yeah. Because there's <laughs> it's <laughs> Brian versus Elizondo. So oh, I, 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 I fall on the Brian side. Oh really? Yeah, I celebrate them both. I would have loved. I feel like the John Brian version doesn't sound all the way finished so i would i would love to hear how how it how it was finished but yeah i probably fall i heard the john bryan version first so i would probably go with that one but but some of the grooves on elizondo's version are sick so i kind of i like them both really she's one of my favorites she's like total she's one of my one of my woman crush Wednesdays. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I, every everything she does, uh, I, I'm always wait waiting to hear. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's talk about some more of your musical taste. Uh, what's a perfect record, and what makes it perfect? Recovering the satellites by Counting Crows. Gil Norton produced it. They did this record at a time when they were just like you know coming off of Mr. Jones. They were just as hot as you can be. And the fact that they made this like 
this like really moody rock record. You know, they kind of locked themselves away in a house and did, you know, and did this record and it it doesn't sound particularly slick. It's just like has so much so much emotion in the record and and the song the, the record's kind of like laid out sequence-wise. It kind of plays like a live concert. So it's kind of like a a faux ending and then they come back like seems like the record comes back for an encore it's just like the record i mean this is what this was one of my favorite records in high school and and i still just like i think when when i'm making copeland records that record's kind of always in the back of my head and i don't think i'll i don't think we'll ever make like a a really slick punchy modern sounding record probably because of that record that record just has so much room so much space it's you know it it punches when it needs to but there's just like way more emotion behind it than like you know sonic punch i guess hmm all right well i i know what i'm doing when we get done um yeah you get yourself some headphones yeah uh, that, that that is how i do it um <laughs> be, being a new york city city citizen you got got to do headphones all the time <laughs> Talk to me about five record of your favorite records and how they shaped your musical growth. That that record is that's a given, and and that was pretty early on. That was in in high school, so that like kind of started me down a path. Um, okay, computer came along, uh, and that kind of kind of blew my dome, um, and that kind of started my love affair with Radiohead for you know you know, uh, probably two decades now, however old that record is. Static and Silence by the Sundays. Um, uh, I think that's, I, I think I kind of like got got into the falsetto thing because I fell in love with that record and wanted to be able to sing, wanted to be able to sing along with Harriet Wheeler. So, you know, I think, I, I think I just got a lot of practice <laughs> singing, singing, singing high with that record. And uh, she did, does tons of cool stuff with like octave doubling and like the, the the way she like kind of like layers her vocals on that and it's just a really really cool record and just beautiful songs i i jumped on on the beatles late in my life i think i think i didn't hear a full beatles record until after i was already already like touring full time in a band so probably like until i was like 20 years old i don't think i've heard a full beatles record but i love i i kind of first fell in love like i mean Goldman was horrified that I hadn't heard, you know, Beatles records, and uh, so I uh, I dug in and just kind of fell in love with Revolver first. Revolver and Rubber Soul at the same time for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that one's great too. Um, so I think those are my Revolver and Rubber Soul are probably like my my two favorite Beatles records, and it kind of definitely opened up a lot of a lot of doors for me creatively. Most Def's ecstatic record, kind of, it's hard to find like a, because I love hip hop, but I don't think in hip hop it's, you know, the the L, the like the concept of an LP is not like as, they don't swing for the fences with like really really like artistic LPs. They're going for singles and they're, but I think Most Def does. He just makes great records, and that's probably my favorite Most Def record. And and Kanye makes great records too, and I think that's that's what sets him apart, you know, from. Most of hip hop is he like knows how to put together a record. I I, t- I totally agree, and, and you know I I get so bored with Kanye bashing, and you know it's it's hard to defend him after yesterday with the Bill Cosby thing, but like uh, yeah, but yeah, artistically there's there is no one who 
r- really seems like they're like trying to hit swing for the fences with like making an artistic statement on every album that is consistent and unified throughout the record. Yeah, absolutely. Cause yeah, hip hop records can become kind of hodgepodgey, you know, cause you get like all these different producers on there and there's no, you know, a lot of times there's no like, you know, overseeing creative force of on, on hip hop records. His artistic vision is hard to, you know, it's hard to criticize that he's, He's a powerhouse of creativity. So what's your favorite record of recent times and what's been inspiring you about it? Uh, have you heard the Banks record, The I ha- Goddess? I have heard Goddess that record. record. Uh, my, my, my roommate's actually a very big fan of that record. Oh, man, that record just just crushed me. And especially, I, I, I kind of came into it right after making a dark electronic record for a female solo artist and then kind of through that just started like you know just wanting to hear what else was out there and like I was maybe a late adopter of that record um, I think it came out maybe maybe a, a, a year yeah it came out maybe two years ago or something and I didn't um I didn't jump on it till maybe about six months ago man that record is so good it's uh yeah the the grooves the it made me feel really stupid about how I've been mixing because, you know, I always want to make a nice, bright, punchy mix. And that record's like, there's bright elements, but they've, there's so much that is dark. And there's so much going on that's like kind of sitting below the the high end of the record, below the high end of the mix. Like It's like whoever mixed it just wasn't afraid to let stuff be dark. Yeah, no, there's definitely weird, very weird dark colors at times in that yeah, record. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's my that's my my main jam right now. Nice. So lastly, uh, what have you been working on lately? Uh, see, I just had this wildlife in the studio. They're like an epitaph acoustic acoustic duo. I did their first record two years ago, and they signed epitaph, and now we're doing doing the second record. So I just just finished that up. And I made um, actually the record I was just talking about the electronic record um, for this. She's like a kind of American Idol alum named Angie Miller. She did well on I don't I don't really watch the show. She did uh, I think a season eleven or twelve. She like got third place and somehow is you know she's kind of retained her fan base, which is no easy task because you know reality show fans are notoriously fickle. So she's kind of done a really good job of like she's real driven and has like a real like kind of captivating stage presence and yeah so I did a record for her and uh, that should be out I imagine mid-spring late spring or something If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 